I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 7th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, officials try to get the capital city's plagued water treatment plant fully operational. And the mayor of Jackson responds to criticism of the city's management of the facility. Plus, we look ahead to January's legislative session with the lieutenant governor. Plus, illuminating the history of the enslaved through the Lantern Project. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Water pressure in the city of Jackson has reached a level of stability. Crews at the troubled O.B. Curtis treatment plant have managed to increase pressure throughout the system. City officials say a setback did occur yesterday, but it did not have immediate effects on residents. Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antarlamamba says it demonstrates how little margin of error there is at the facility. The city of Jackson has restored its pressure before. We've lifted boil water notices before, but I think that it is critical that we don't drop a mission accomplished banner just yet because the condition is still as we've said it is, that it's not a matter of if these systems will fail again, but when these systems will fail again if we don't have permanent fixes in place. Our stopgap measures will not be sufficient. Uh, There are more repairs that are taking place on a permanent level than has happened before, Uh, but there is still a significant road ahead. And so uh, for those that are carrying this story, I want to lift that up. Uh, For the residents of Jackson who have been enduring this challenge, I want to speak honestly to you instead of providing some false hope that that we are in the clear and that there are no more problems uh, to contend with. We believe that if everyone stays together, Uh, if that we work uh, on a common or on one sheet of music, then the likelihood that we can overcome these challenges is probably greater than it's ever been before. Uh, But the challenges still exist nonetheless, and so we need to communicate that. Lumumba appeared before the press for the first time since Governor Tate Reeves placed a level of blame on city officials for problems with the water treatment plant. On Monday, Reeves claimed the administration for the city has failed to produce plans for updating water infrastructure, 
a sentiment which was echoed by Congressman Benny Thompson in a report by Mississippi Today. And Reeves said city leadership neglected to hire staff and maintain the 30-year-old plant. Lamumba says the shift from unified front to finger-pointing in less than a week leaves residents unresolved. Typically, we understand that it is imperative that we put our political differences aside to contend with the challenge that we all face. And when we look at the lack of water in the city of Jackson, when we look at the humiliation that our residents have suffered from, I think that this is an important time to focus on that unity and not that division. That is why I have consistently avoided opportunities to take shots. That is why I have consistently spoken of that is not the priority of today. And that is what I want to communicate and reiterate again. I think that when residents are suffering at the hands of the challenges that we've seen, uh, and they see us at a press conference together, and in that press conference we say that we're going to work together, we say that this is a unified effort, right? And not more than a week later, we're taking shots, then what that fundamentally does to the residents of Jackson is that it leaves them less resolved or less confident that we're actually going to be able to fix these problems. As long-term solutions for operations at the plant are considered by local, state, and federal officials, Lumumba says there is one choice he strongly opposes. Most people don't care how a watch works. They just want to be able to tell time. Most residents don't care who controls the system in a basic way so long as the system works. However, right, I think that, that what we have to inform one another are of is what are the implications of the decisions we make, right? There is extensive literature. There is extensive history of how cities have been compromised by the privatization or the pillaging of public resources and how it impacts the residents specifically. It impacts them in terms of the rate structure and how much they pay, sometimes making it unaffordable for people to live in this city. That is why I'm against privatization, right? Is extensive literature in terms of all of the money that cities use. The only thing that a city has a franchise or a monopoly on is water, right? Entergy takes the power. Atmos takes the gas. You have various companies that provide cable, right? So that is the only resources that we have to not only repair the lines of our water system, repair the water treatment facility for years to come. And so if you privatize, then what do you understand from a private company? If it's privatization, and we have to understand the difference between privatization and an operations and maintenance agreement. Privatization is based on a company trying to identify how they can profit off of a city. They're not coming to be benevolent, right? They're coming to make money, right? And so in their agreement, they're looking at where they make their profit margin. For the city, we're not interested in a profit margin. We're interested in success and to be able to execute all of the resources and all of the services that we have to do. Lamumba and Reeves are expected to meet with FEMA Administrator Michael Regan today. Actually, he's with the Environmental Protection Agency. Coming up, we look ahead to January's legislative session with the Lieutenant Governor. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. 
Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The legislative session is four months away, but leadership is already laying out its priorities. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman has appointed a study group to gather expertise to inform policy decisions regarding maternal and infant health. They'll begin their work later next month, and he has other policy goals for the final session of the term for elected lawmakers. In part two of our conversation, Conversation, we examine those priorities, beginning with health care in a post-Obs world. We, of course, are pro-life and pro-child, and we need to be as active pro-child as we have been in pro-life movement. And to do that, I think we have to look at the health, safety, and, and medical care of children. Uh, everything that, ha- that happens between conception and three years old will be on the table to see how we can do better now that we anticipate additional births in the in the state, and also to take care of those those children that are that are coming here to make sure they have health. Uh, as you know, the Senate was on record uh, three different times to pass postpartum care for mothers, and the statistics are um, very difficult on maternal deaths, uh, very uh, horrifying on how many what percentage of our children actually see a physician in the first year or year and a half after birth. So we are very interested in in those uh, statistics being reduced to zero. And uh, you'll see all of those coming in the hearings here, and our our Senate is going to address each of those, and there'll be legislation that follows that. The Senate supported going from two months to 12 months for postpartum care. Since that didn't work out, now that we are finding ourselves in a different situation where, as you have uh, explained, health care is a serious concern for young mothers and children, do you think there will be more of a buy-in to do something that would provide more health coverage for low-income working mothers? The uh, I anticipate the Senate will again pass postpartum, and I'm hopeful that the that the House will uh, have a more favorable response. First of all, second of all, we are devoting a significant amount of time and effort to doing the issues that that begin by providing more doctors. We provided over fifty million dollars for a new nursing school at the University of Mississippi, providing more nurses both practical and RNs and others that can see patients because we didn't have the staff to do that. We we provided for a rural hospital loan program to get our rural hospitals, keep them functioning well, and we'll be addressing rural hospital expenses again this year to make sure that they can stay in the communities and be, be um, available for delivery of health care. So I think you will see us discussing both the delivery of health care and the individuals and entities that do so. Uh, all of that will be on the table this year, and I, I do not anticipate there will be an expansion of Medicaid, but there are many other things that we can do to have a 
more healthy environment for our citizens and make sure that they are, in fact, have access to health care. And we also need to encourage everyone, of course, part of that is self-reliant. Uh, we, you need to get up and walk uh, and visit with your neighbors in the afternoon and and don't supersize everything and, and get regular checkups and do, do the things that, that keep you healthy. We want our, our citizens uh, to remain healthy. So there should be a, a component of that that we, we need to watch ourselves and make sure that we're having healthy meals where we can and the other things that are available to us. So now I think this is uh, something that you attack on multiple fronts, not just one thing. Another issue, it hasn't been raised uh, often, but biological fathers, their responsibility, um, how can the legislature or can the legislature do anything to engage biological fathers in taking care of their children for those who don't there is a requirement that the biological father be identified as you know and and uh, to receive certain benefits from the department of uh, human services and and then those biological fathers um, are asked to pay pay their proportionate share that is due to the to them under uh, the court, under the laws of the state of Mississippi. The ones that don't are commonly referred to as deadbeat dads. Um, They are harming Mississippi probably more than anything else that we have here. And when you have these so-called deadbeat dads, they really are making it so difficult for their next generation that they really spawned to have an opportunity to achieve the maximum they can during their lifetimes. So while I I think the state will continue to have an economic part, the moral part will have to come from each individual. And briefly, we're getting close to January. We've got four more months or so. Anything that stands out that you will be tackling right out of the gate at the start of the session? Right. If we don't have uh, uh, a called in by special session, for the governor on the on the crisis of, for 200,000 Mississippians here in central Mississippi, I expect that legislation will be prevalent immediately. Secondly, we believe that it, it is imperative for us as, a, as school systems to begin to do the quarterly school system. And that is nine weeks on and two or three weeks off with a much shortened uh, summer break. And the reasons for that are um, we have nine weeks, and then we have what's called an intercession period, and that during that period, a lot of the children still come to class and whatnot, but they can either catch up uh, if they were behind, or they can accelerate uh, their learning in another capacity. Um, and then it, instead of a long summer break, uh, you know, from basically May to August or something like that, uh, when you talk to teachers, there's a, that summer gap, they call it, and having to take a month to get them back up to speed, this allows us to basically be in a learning environment for for pretty much continually during the year. Uh, and also, so in some instances, children need to be fed, and there are there are other social things that go with it. But the educational opportunities are much greater. So I anticipate there will be legislation immediately addressed uh, to encourage uh, other school systems to adopt a modified calendar and then to support those school systems that have done so already. One last question. 
Mm-hmm. Are you running for re-election? <laughs> well, I, I'm running to get, get next year at first. Well, I, everybody has to decide what we're doing by, I think, January the 30th. Um, I have I've been blessed to be able to serve here, and I, I'm really enjoying the opportunity to to work on these policy issues like we just talked about. And um, if people decide to rehire me, that certainly would be a positive, and I will have to make that decision here before the end of the year. So that sounds like yes, maybe, but maybe yes. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, people that make those decisions begin with uh, family, then supporters, then voters, and so you got you got to ask a lot of questions before you make a decision like that. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, we appreciate your time in speaking with us. Thank you so much, Edward. We'll talk to you soon. Coming up, illuminating the history of the enslaved through the Lantern Project. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. An academic effort is underway to centralize legal records documenting enslaved persons from across the Deep South. The collaborative effort called the Lantern Project is led by Mississippi State University and aims to provide free online access to primary sources of information about enslaved persons like civil and criminal court records, deeds, probate records, receipts, bills of sale, and more. Jennifer McGillan is coordinator of Manuscripts at Mississippi State University, and she's presenting today at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. McGillan shares more with us. The Lantern Project uh, is an effort uh, to digitize and transcribe legal records of enslaved persons from Mississippi and Alabama uh, from roughly 1800 to 1865. And it was uh, sponsored and uh, supported by the National Historical Publications and Records Commission of the United States National Archives and Records Administration and uh, includes material from six institutions, including uh, the University of Mississippi uh, Libraries, Delta State University Libraries, Historic Natchez Foundation, uh, Mississippi State University Libraries, the Columbus Lounge Public Library System, and the Montgomery County, Alabama Archives. All these institutions have information, documentation about enslaved people. Yes. How did they acquire it, do you know? Uh, a variety of ways. Uh, the Some of the material is uh, in from probate records and uh, some of it is from personal and family papers, so some institutions receive these materials as uh, as donations, and other institutions, uh, the records were officially transferred to them, or they are kept as part of their 
regular uh, activities as a government organization. It really it depends on the record and the organization. I noticed of late the term has been enslaved uh, people when referring to slaves. Why yeah. has that terminology changed? To 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 center their humanity, to to center them as uh, as people uh, rather than their uh, I guess their condition. That, I mean that's that's why I have that's why I use enslaved persons to to sort of you know in, to center their humanity. I see. All of this information is going to be digitized. We have we have digitized uh, many documents, and uh, they're not all on the website yet, but we are getting there. So we are have digitized significant chunks of collections. Sometimes we weren't able to get the entire thing just due to the just due to the size of the collection. Like that's particularly true with the uh, the probate records from Natchez and Montgomery. But um, but we have made a start at it. What are the probate records? What is that? Uh, pro- probate records are uh, are records that uh, are about the um, the property of a deceased person, and so in the antebellum South, those those records include um, information about enslaved persons if the deceased person had been a slave owner. So in in the probate records, they're going to have uh, lists of the property. Um, of the deceased person that, that include enslaved persons. Uh, it's also going to include information about uh, the disposition uh, of that property. So it will it will include records of the transfer of enslaved persons from you know for either from one family member to another, or if uh, if they were just if they were had you know if, if something else happened if they if they were um, sent to auction or or something like that then that there'll also be a record of that uh, in the files and often those records will will include uh, the, the purchaser so you can you can at least attempt to document the movements of enslaved persons within a community but they didn't use their names correct no they did. They did. They they uh, they they have they have their names, uh, and they will sometimes have ages, uh, and sometimes also physical descriptions of the person. They also will have sometimes have the family information, like they might give a, a woman's name and then say and her two children, and sometimes they also include the names of the children. Um, but they they definitely in so, so there are some records where where they do not include the names. Um, but more often, most often, they, they will definitely, they will have the names of the people. So you can, you can be reading a, a list of property, and uh, you, can, you can absolutely see the people uh, that, are, that are listed. What do you want to get across to people about the Lantern Project? Uh, well, I, w- I, would, I would say... Um, we're not we're not done. If you go to the website and, and notice that there's not a lot there, we're not done. There's more coming, uh, but that uh, that we hope it's a we hope it's a good resource. We really we want people to use it. Um, we encourage you to uh, to come and 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 hear 
the you know the presentation to learn more uh to go to the website and click around and 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 you know look at look at some documents uh and bookmark us and and come back uh and see what's new uh there are also some uh some circuit court records in there so you'll see uh enslaved persons involved in criminal cases so um those can also be very interesting reading how uh how enslaved persons factored in to uh to certain criminal proceedings, whether they had been, uh, you know, accused of a crime or had been of somehow somehow otherwise involved in uh, in a criminal activity, and, and sometimes it was tangential and it was really not something that, you know, they were more acted upon than than acting. Well, Jennifer McGillan with the Lantern Project, Mississippi State University, and you're part of a coalition with other Mississippi institutions and in Alabama as well, working to digitize uh, information about enslaved persons so people can have access to it for research. Yes. And again, you're going to be speaking at the two museums at noon. Thank you so much for speaking with us and giving us some insight into the work that you're doing. Well, thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.